You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, just great to be with you. Uh, we are in a study right now going through the book of Judges, which is this really uh, interesting book uh, in the Bible that it, it covers a unique period of history between the great work of God's people being delivered out of Egypt and uh, taking the promised land. So it's this time when they are settling in the promised land and, uh, at the, and it's before the kings, before they start having kings. And during this time of Israel, it was really a bad time, for the theme of the book is everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and we'll see that a bit today. Today, I want to talk about the power of providence, the power of providence. Now, providence is kind of an antiquated uh, theological word, which just basically means this, that the Bible teaches that God not only creates everything and then sort of, he doesn't create everything and step back and, and let it uh, sort of uh, do its thing, but God is actively involved in managing, overseeing, guiding and directing his creation. That's what providence means, that God is active in the affairs of the world, and in particular for his people, because this story is about his people, for his people he promises that by his providence his hand works in all the details of our life such that even bad things work for our good, that he will work everything for our ultimate good and for his glory. That's providence, God's hand at work in all of the details of our lives. You know, um, I don't know if you saw this, but recently there was a uh, Chinese restaurant that went viral. Uh, it's a small, little, insignificant Chinese restaurant in Montreal called Aunt Day. And uh, the owner went viral, and this is the, the story about it. Um, Fei Gong Fei, the owner of Aunt Day's Chinese food restaurant in Montreal, Canada, isn't shy about expressing his hilariously honest and unfiltered opinions about the food that his eatery serves. In fact, the menu page of Aunt Day website went viral last week because virtually every dish is accompanied by one of Faye's candid descriptions. So he has a menu, a restaurant owner, and has the picture of the food and a description of the food, and then quotes by the owner about the dish, the dishes that are re refreshingly honest. So when it comes to, for instance, uh, the orange chicken at the restaurant, he writes that he is not super impressed, I'm sorry, by the beef, he's not super impressed by the orange beef that their restaurant serves. He says, quote, comparing to our general Tao chicken, this one is not that good. Anyway, I'm not a big fan of North American Chinese food, so it's your call. Now, here's the owner of the restaurant saying, you know, I really wouldn't get this. Uh, the, the General Tiles chicken is much better. He even provides feedback for dishes that he hasn't had the chance to sample yet. For instance, on the menu it says for one dish, quote, this is new on our menu. I did not have a chance to try this one yet. 
At another one for the saute beef, uh, he says, according to a lot of customers, this one is very popular. I still don't have a chance to taste it. Looks like I should spend more time eating at my own restaurant, he writes in the menu. Well, it stirred up a tremendous amount of media attention. The article says, when Faye noted that the media attention surrounding his refreshingly candid menu descriptions, he said it's been surreal. It's definitely been a welcome surprise given everything the restaurant industry has experienced in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic. People were retweeting sections of his menu because they found them refreshingly honest. For an owner of a restaurant to say, you know, this whole genre of food's not really my preference. For an owner to say, I really wouldn't eat that, uh, I'd eat something else. For an owner to say, everybody likes this, but to be honest, I haven't even tasted it yet, was so authentic and real that people appreciated it. And, you know, the Bible is authentic and real. And the passage we're going to read today is unusually authentic and real in its details. Uh, The reality is that parts of the text are uncomfortable uh, because of the violence. Uh, Some of it is perhaps a little embarrassing to discuss in church because of the bathroom nature of some of the text. But we find in the book of Judges that story after story, starting today, is going to be gritty and honest in its portrayal of the real actions of God's people. And the fact that the Bible tells us real things that happen with the tale is a mark, just like the restaurant menu, of the authenticity of the product. It speaks to its reality. I mean, if you're a skeptic or new to the Bible, I would just point out to you that the Bible, particularly Old Testament narrative, is not, uh, you know, it's not shallow, it's not mystical, it is real, it is earthy, and it is gritty, and that points us to the very truth uh, of its nature. The text today uh, is unusual in some of its details, but those details we're going to see as we go through really point us to God's providence, for God is involved in all the details of his people's lives. So let's read Judges 3, verses 12 through 30. This is God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him uh, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes." And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back to the, at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, 
silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of his cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still not, did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor." He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed behind, beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years." So here's what happens in the story. After 40 years prior to this, after 40 years of peace, the people again, verse 12, do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. It's mentioned twice in that verse. They do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And in the book of Judges, we've learned that when they do something that is evil, when they do what is evil, that's turning to idols. They turn away from God and they turn to idols. It happens repeatedly in the book of Judges. And so what does God do? Well, God raises up a foreign king, Eglon, to oppress his people. Uh, Eglon forms an alliance with several other groups of people, and these groups of people occupy what the text says, the city of Palms, that, that is Jericho. So they take over Jericho, which interestingly was the great city that was destroyed when they came first into the Holy Land, uh, God's promised land to his people. But now it goes back to pagans who uh, rule over it. And as a result of this, Israel serves this pagan king for 18 years. Now, if you've been here for the previous sermons, this feels like deja vu because this happens over 
and over and over again. Here's a chart that we prepared a couple of weeks ago uh, to show the pattern that happens, and it's happening again. Israel served the Lord for 40 years, verse 11. Then verse 12, they fall into sin. They do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. So then Israel is oppressed by Eglon, the king uh, of Moab. And then what we're going to see happens next uh, there in verse... um, Uh, Let's see, 15, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord, that's the bottom of the chart, and the Lord raises up for them a deliverer, uh, Ehud, the son of Gera, Benjamite, a left-handed man. So God raises up a judge, and at the end of the chapter, they will be delivered, and they will serve the Lord at the top of the chart again for 80 years. It's a repeated cycle that happens over and over in the book. So what I want to do is walk through the story, and I'm going to dive into some of the details because they're important, Uh, and we're going to look first of all at the story at a human level, And then I'm going to back up, and I want to look at the story from a divine level, because I think there's a picture here of what God is doing to rescue his people at a divine level. But first of all, at a human level. The first thing we learn about this guy Ehud is that he is a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, the previous judge we read about in our last study was an all-American judge. He was Othniel. He was the great judge. We met him in chapter one before he was a judge, and he was a courageous warrior. He took a city and won the, the hand of Caleb's daughter in marriage. And so he was, Othniel was an amazing judge. He was from the ultimate tribe. He was from Judah. So Othniel, the previous judge, is the Tom Brady of judges. He is a winner, and he is a dreamboat. So Othniel is incredible. But now we get to Ehud, and the contrast couldn't be greater. He's from Benjamin. Benjamin is a no-account tribe. We found in the first chapter that Benjamin couldn't even get the pagans out of Jerusalem. They move into Jerusalem, but they they are sharing it with the Canaanites. And not only that, but he's left-handed. Now, I'm sympathetic. I write left-handed. I, I, I write left-handed. I throw right-handed. I do. I'm ambidextrous, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm not really ambidextrous. I'm confused. That's what I am. <clears throat> but anyway, so I, I get the left-handed thing. But left-handed's not good in the Bible. It's not good in the Bible. Uh, there's a few reasons for this. The, the word translated left-handed here literally means impeded or restricted in the right hand. So some people think, some scholars think that what happens is he was impeded with his right hand and was disabled in his right hand, thus he used his left hand. That would certainly be a possibility because he does get private access to a king, and if he had a disabled hand, especially the right hand, which was the hand that one used uh, with a sword and in battle, he could appear to be, uh, you know, not be a threat to the king. So it could be that he is disabled um, and is viewed as not a threat. But regardless of whether he's disabled or just left-handed, the right hand in the Bible is what is respected. Isaiah 62, the Lord swears by his right hand. In the Psalms, at the Lord's right hand are pleasures forevermore, not his left, uh, that the, the Son of God sits at the right hand of the Father, not on the left hand. So the right hand in the Scripture is 
the right hand. And so uh, we say that Ehud is sort of an irregular kind of judge, not one that we would expect. And he leads a delegation bringing tribute to Eglon. Uh, The people of Israel, verse 15, send tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. This, This tribute is a forced taxation. A forced taxation that they were, they were required to pay to a pagan king to live in their own land that was given them by God. So you can imagine what the people thought about this. Uh, and the tribute was likely produce. It was crops. It was food that they bring to the ruler. So before delivering the food, before uh, Ehud delivers the food, we see in verse 16 that he has a plan. He makes for himself a sword. It's uh, 18 inches in length, so we might call that a a dagger. And uh, he makes this dagger. It's a two-edged dagger, and he, he straps it to his right thigh. So what we're finding out before anything else happens, this guy is devious, he is crafty, he is a devious assassin who plans to bring more than a tribute to Eglon. He's got a surprise for him. So he presents the tribute to Eglon, verse 17, and we find that Eglon was a very fat man. Now, I don't know if you noticed in the Bible when you read it, but you rarely get a description physically of individuals. We don't get a physical description of Paul or, you know, we don't know uh, what people looked like or we rarely get physical descriptions. But when we do, it's key in the story. So for instance, we get, we get something about Goliath's height. We find out that Bathsheba is beautiful and so David lusts after her and takes her for himself. And here we learn that he is a very fat man. So why do we need to know about Eglon's sort of extraordinary girth? Well, the sentence right before it tells us why. We're supposed to draw something from the reality of his physical appearance. Verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon. He brought the food in offering to Eglon, who was a very fat man. What's the point? That Eglon is getting fat off the produce that God's people are paying him in taxation. He he has a swollen pride in his rulership and a swollen waistline to match, that this guy is literally getting fat off the work of Israel. And, and, And so he is demanding this tribute that they feed him and that they feed the other enemies of God. And in this, we are meant to feel Israel's shame and their pain. I mean, uh, the original readers of this would have felt the shame of having to pay for this guy uh, and his expansive lifestyle, if you will, because of he's requiring them to pay for God's land. There's something shameful. There's something that would make them angry about all of this. There's something that they would find humorous. Most scholars say that something they would find in that as well, that that God is about to have justice and that the man who's grown fat off them is about to pay for what he has done. We also see the shame of this all in the names and the words themselves. So, for instance, the name Ehud, the judge here, it means, where is my glory? 
where is my glory, is what his name means. The word for tribute here is the exact same Hebrew word that's used for the grain offerings that they brought to Yahweh at the tabernacle. So the, the tribute is the same thing as a grain offering, the same word. It is an offering of sorts. So if we read this very literally, what the sentence says, Ehud brings tribute to the pagan king, it literally means, where is my glory in bringing an offering to a pagan king? Where is the glory in that? The glory has clearly departed. So that's what's happening at a human level. There is this extreme taxation that they hate. And so Ehud's going to do something about it. He's going to bring it to an end. So after delivering the tribute, uh, he and the others begin to go home. And when they get, it says, to the idols, uh, when he gets to the point where there are idols in Gilgal, he turns back. It's just a picture of what's going on in Israel. It's a, it's a, we look at that and say, that's an extraneous detail. Why do we need to know the point at which he turns around? Who cares? Well, it's the point at an idol. It's just painting the picture of Israel. They're sold out to idols. They've been worshiping idols. The foreign idols are in their land. And now they are being oppressed by a foreign king because of their idolatry. And so he turns around and decides to do something about it, to execute the plan which he has made ahead of time. So in verse 20, uh, it says, or rather, let's look at 19. He turns back at the idols, and he comes back to the king and says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king sort of surprisingly dismisses everybody. I think this would be rare, especially with a foreigner, that he's going to dismiss his guards. He's going to dismiss his servants, and he's going to stand alone with this man who perhaps has a disabled hand and looks like he's not a threat, perhaps. But for whatever reason, he is, uh, he's going to meet with him. And then it gets rather interesting. Verse 20, Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Now, there is much speculation scholarly about what is the cool roof chamber, but the consensus is that it's his bathroom. And the reason for that is in verse 24, we see that uh, when he had gone, it says the servants, verse 24, when they came to the doors of the roof chamber that were locked, they thought surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool roof chamber. So he's either in the bathroom or the cool roof chamber has a closet, which is a bathroom. Uh, at any rate, he comes to him and he says to him, uh, when he's sitting in his cool roof chamber, I have a message from God for you, verse 20, and he arose from his seat. He arose from his seat. He arose from his throne. There's more than one type of throne. The scholars say we're not sure what's happening in this scene, but he arises from his seat in that moment. I mean, this past week was an interesting study. I have studied the Bible for years in preparing sermons, but this was the first week I ever studied drawings of Moabite kingly bathrooms. And uh, this year, uh, this week I did, I almost brought a diagram, but I thought that's getting too much into the details and it's a bit of a distraction, but there is scholarly debate. So he may have just been sitting on a chair. He may have been sitting on a royal throne. We don't know, but he is, stands up. And he's going to receive the message from Ehud. And then 
everything moves into slow motion in verse 21. Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Now, one thing I didn't mention is what Eglon's name means. Eglon's name means calf. This is a picture of the fattened calf receiving a slaughtering, the judgment of God by the supposed word of God, which turned out to be the dagger of Ehud placed in his belly and his stomach encapsulates it so that he takes on the very judgment for his actions. The fat closes over it and then the dung came out. I'm not going to speculate on what that means. I'm going to read you a quote from a scholar. This is an Old Testament scholar, Daniel Block from Southern Seminary. Uh, and this is what he says that phrase means. When Eglon fell to the ground and expired, his bowels relaxed and discharged their contents. Welcome to Grace Church, if you're a guest. Now, we may think that's an unnecessary detail, a crude detail, a gross detail. Uh, you know, why are we talking about that in church? It's actually going to be a very important detail uh, that the Lord uses. We're going to see in just a moment. So verse 24, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they think he is relieving himself. It says, verse 25, they waited till they were embarrassed, and when he did not open the doors, they finally took the key and opened them. They go in, and he is dead. They, they come to the roof chamber. Somehow, uh, Ehud gets out, they come to the roof chamber, and the doors are locked. And, and scholars would say that explicitly they, they think he's relieving himself because the doors are locked. But implicitly, the very clear indication of the text is uh, these rooms are not hermetically sealed. Uh, there is some ventilation in the room, and so they detect an odor. And they assume that he is, let's just say, about his business. And so they don't want to interrupt him. And if you ever had this experience, maybe you have a guest at your house in their bathroom, and after a while, you kind of go, so somebody check on that person. It's really awkward, and you don't want to knock on a door. And you think you don't want to knock on the door when somebody's occupied. This is an ancient Near Eastern king, and you interrupt his business, you might be killed. So it's embarrassing. They're shuffling their feet. I don't know. Should we go in? What do we do? And uh, the, the door's locked. The smell's there. And what is, how long? And finally, we must go in. We must go in, and when they do, they find him dead. And the reality is, it is the locked door and likely the smell that God uses to provide the time for Ehud to make an escape. Because while they're shuffling around, embarrassed by the whole detail, like maybe you are that I'm talking about this, while they're embarrassed by the whole detail, he's making his escape. It is a... Gritty, earthy, uh, 
never probably talk about this again in church, kind of illustration that shows that, that he makes his getaway. And in verse 26, it says that he had escaped and while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols to escape to Syrah. The point is he goes past the idols who do nothing to save their king. He then goes to the hill country, he blows a trumpet, says, I've killed the king who's oppressing us, come on with me, let's take the Moabites. They, the army goes out, they kill 10,000 able-bodied men, uh, and then they are freed, and they have 80 years of freedom serving the Lord that comes from this incident. That's what happens at a human level. What happens at a divine level? I've sort of already hinted at it, the Lord using a detail to give him time to get away. But we can read this just as a story of human action, but closer look shows that there's divine activity all over this story. I mean, what's the human action? Well, Ehud's the central character. He drives the narrative with his actions. What does he do? Well, he makes a plan for an assassination. Uh, he makes a dagger, a two-edged sword. He conceals it. He straps it to his leg. He brings tribute and gains trust from the king. He requests a meeting with the king. The king agrees. He says he has a word for him. He's tricking him and deceiving him uh, with this promise of a secret message. He kills him. He locks the door. He runs for escape, and they all live happily ever after, at least for 80 years until they fall into idolatry again. But if you notice the story, there's a lot of details. And when you think about it, you looked at Othniel, it's just a few verses. God raised him up. He defeated the people of Mesopotamia, and the people returned to the Lord, and they had peace for 40 years. But this has all these details in it. Why does he get all of these what appear to be random details? Why do we need to know where he turns around? Why do we need to know when he's gone, what he passes? Why do we need to know that the king's alone? Couldn't it have just said, and, and he stabbed the king and they were free? Why do we need to know he's alone and then there, there's this, this uh, gross sort of uh, you know, um, sword engulfed by his girth? Why do we need to know all of these kind of details, because God's providence is in all of this. I mean, just think about how many steps in this, if it hadn't gone the way it had gone, everything would be different. Think about it. What if, what if, uh, you know, security is a significant concern for a king. By the way, the reason you often lost your kingship is because of this. It's because of a coup. There's not a de democratic vote and a peaceful transfer of power. If you're a king, it's usually you, you get dethroned when someone kills you. So there would be high security around a king. What if they frisk him, which you would expect? What if they frisked Ehud when he came in? But they don't, or at least they don't. Maybe they just frisked his other leg. They don't find the sword. Uh, what if, uh, after all, the guards uh, don't leave when he returns to talk to them? What if, what if Eglon doesn't want to hear the message? Or what if he says, this would be natural, all my guards are here, tell me the message. Oh, you said it's a secret message? All my guards are here. Come whisper it in my ear. What if he had done something like that? What if he never dismissed the ser servants? What if when he arose from his seat, he had seen him reach for the dagger and had fought back? What if when the dagger entered him, this is what I thought about when I first read it, what, the guards are just outside. What if he had yelled out for help? 
And they had heard him. They would have come busting in, bursting in, and right away delivered their king from danger. What if the servants see Ehud lock the door on his way out and say, wait a minute, hold on a second. Why why are you locking the door? What's going on here? What, what uh, What if they don't think he's relieving himself? What if there's no indications that maybe he's relieving himself? And so they just open the door and go right in and find him dead and immediately, immediately rush out and catch up to Ehud, who doesn't get away. One author said, the point is that left to their own skills and schemes, the Israelites can never succeed. Only the Lord can guide events to bring about a successful outcome, and that's what he does. God's providence makes it all work. I mean, the story begins and ends with God, not with Ehud. Verse 15 The Lord raised up a deliverer. Where does Ehud come from? The school of assassins? No, God raised him up. At the end of the story, verse 28, it says, um, uh, it it says, uh, he says, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies into your hands. The Lord raises up a deliverer. The Lord gives your enemies in your hand. Now, there's all kinds of details in between about daggers and stabbings and private conversations and all these details, but the story is bookended by God's action. He raises up a judge. He delivers his people. And there is, this is so important, there is this interplay between human and divine activity. There is the activity of Ehud, and there is the activity of God. And in the Bible we find, this is stretching, we find that God will often even use sinful actions for his purposes. If you bristle in the description of the assassination, it may not just be modern Western sensibilities, it may be right, Uh, It it may be that he's doing something wrong here. The text never endorses what he does. And as a matter of fact, if you compare it to Othniel, Othniel chapter 3 verse 10, we find that the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. There is no statement about the spirit of the Lord being upon Ehud when he assassinates the king. He may be acting off script. He may be going rogue and doing his own thing. And yet, while the Bible clearly defines good and evil, the Bible defines good and evil actions, the events of the Bible are never simply things people do and things God does. It doesn't work that way. For instance, think about Genesis 50. Genesis 50 is the end of the story of Joseph. His brothers hated him, and sold him into slavery, which is evil. And yet he's raised up, end of the story, he provides food for his family, and this is what he says to them. What you meant for evil, selling me into slavery, God meant for good. That's the interplay. The actions of man, evil. The actions of God providentially redeems it for the good of his people. Or the best example in all the Bible is the crucifixion of Jesus. Think about Acts 2, verse 23. 
Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why is Jesus killed? Because lawless, wicked men falsely accused him and executed him uh, sinfully. Why is Jesus crucified? Because God had a definite plan and a foreknowledge that that would happen. Does Jesus die because of the will of evil man? Yes. Does Jesus die because of the will of a holy God? Yes. The, the actions of man and the actions of God work together such that God has his way. And if we can grasp this divine perspective, and I'll close here, how do we live with this divine perspective? Because this will change everything about your life if you get this. It'll change everything about the way you walk through suffering. It'll change everything away the way you process grief and victory. God works in the details of our lives. That's why I took the time to go through the details, to point out that God works in the details of our lives. We need to pause and look up from the details in our lives and see and believe that God is guiding all that affects us. And listen, this doesn't call us to passivity. It calls us to faith. Your actions matter. Do do Ehud's actions matter? Yes. Your actions matter, but God's actions matter more. God's actions matter more. God's providence trumps human action all the time. God's actions matter more. And in the Ehud story, it shows us that God gets down in the nitty-gritty of circumstances. He gets his hands dirty and brings freedom for his people. He's involved. Sometimes bad things happen to us, and we say, God couldn't, couldn't be involved. God couldn't use this. God, uh, God wouldn't uh, be in any way guiding or rescuing in this. This is just not a God thing. But God gets down in the mess and rescues his people. I want you to read this quote with me. It'll be on the screen from Dale Ralph Davis. This is what he says about this passage. He's an Old Testament scholar. He says, the glory of this text, get this, the glory of this text is that it tells us that Yahweh is not a white-gloved, standoffish God out somewhere in the remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get his strong right arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. The God of the Bible does not hold back in the wild blue yonder somewhere waiting for you to pour Clorox and spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he will touch it. He is the God who delights to deliver his people even in their messes, and he likes to make them laugh again. He is the God who allows weeping to endure for a night, but sees that joy comes in the morning. Do you see, this is a messy story about a people who have endured 18 years of oppression, but in the end, they are brought free. They experience freedom from God for 80 years. There is weeping for a night, but there is joy in the morning, and God uses the unseemly details of life to bring rescue to his people. Listen, some of you, some of us are in a mess today. 
You're in a mess. The details of your life, there's something going on and it's a mess. And it may be a mess of your own doing. It may be your sin. It may be your weakness. It may be your ignorance that has brought you to make some bad decisions, perhaps, or someone else has made some decisions that's impacted you. And it's brought you to a a messy place. And God wants you to know that he works through the messes in your life. That's where he does his best work. And it may be, it may be that when the most unseemly, grotesque details occur, that that is actually making a way for your escape. God works in the details. And the other theme that's here and is throughout the book is that God is always saving his people One commentator on this passage points out to the whole book, his name is Barry Webb, he points out about the whole book, there are two amazing things in Judges, Israel's persistence in sin and God's persistence in saving them, and the second is the most astonishing by far. They persist in sin. They run the lap over and over and over and over, and God is ever there answering them. When they cry out, God rescues, not based on their worthiness, but based on his grace. God wants you to have a vision, not that you abuse his grace, never to take advantage of his grace. May we sin that grace may abound. May it never be, Paul says. But God wants us to be so gripped by his grace that we say, this isn't fair what you're doing, God. That I don't deserve this. I haven't earned this. This isn't right that you're rescuing me. I made this mess. I must have to pay. And God rescues because he is gracious and kind, even when we're in messes of our own doing. God saves his people in affliction and suffering and oppression and grief and pain and opposition. And I love the way Davis says it. He's not waiting for you to Clorox and Lysol your soul, to get everything the way it's supposed to be so that you deserve his rescue. That's what grace means. You never deserve rescue, for if you do, it's not grace. And we get that when we come in the front door to become a Christian, but we don't get that after we become a Christian very well, that it is the grace of God that frees us when we cry out. God's not waiting for you to fix everything. He's waiting for you to cry out in desperation, to acknowledge your need, to acknowledge your sin, to acknowledge your need for God, and to ask him to bring relief. What are the fears that you are facing today? Some of us are enduring significant fears. What is it that you're facing? Cry out loud to the Lord. Let's cry out loud together to the Lord. That's that's the message of judges. They cry out and God rescues. God rescues. What are the oppositions that you are facing today? Let's pray that God would rescue. What are the threats, real or imagined, that you are experiencing today? Let's pray for rescue. What is the physical and emotional suffering that you are enduring? Oftentimes, God will use, he's in the details, he will use physical and emotional suffering. But it's also true that God regularly frees us from those things, that he renews our heart, that he revives our mind, that he stirs our soul to fresh hope, and that he even heals our sickness and our injuries and our pains. 
What is the pressure that's caving in on you? The passage doesn't say that you don't need to take some steps. You may very well need to take some steps of action, of repentance. But the truth is that we need to be more aware of God's steps. The doctrine of providence teaches that we need to be more aware of the activity of God than we are our activity. We must trust more in the activity of God than in human activity. We must not be daunted by human activity against us. We must look to the God who controls all and trust him to work all things for good for us. So God is a rescuer. Do you believe that? God is a restorer. God grants peace and rest in the land for people that don't deserve it. And so I think this passage in the whole book teaches us that we need to be looking to God as the rescuer, the one who rescues us and gives us new life as our Savior, the perfect Savior, Jesus, who's never, dece- who's never devious, who's never plotting or scheming, who never kills anyone. Rather, he's killed himself. Jesus brings victory through his own defeat, not because he assassinates Herod, but because he allows up himself as a sacrifice for us. And that Jesus, the perfect Savior, frees delivers, restores people that don't deserve it, people that are in a mess, people who've gotten themselves in a mess. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.